0: Welcome to our new episode of This Is Democracy. Today we are going to discuss the controversy surrounding the overhaul and fundamental efforts to transform the judiciary and the ways in which uh, justice is administered in the state of Israel. Israel has long been seen as uh, one of the few democracies in the Middle East. It's a country obviously with very close relations to the United States and to Europe And uh, it's going through now probably one of its uh, deepest existential crises in the short history of the country over the question of the role that the judiciary should play. And the efforts by the current prime minister, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, to uh, limit the powers of the judiciary and give the legislature, the Israeli Knesset, uh, power to fundamentally override the judiciary. We're going to talk about these uh, judicial reform efforts and we're going to talk about their implications and why they're so controversial and what they mean for democracy in Israel, in our own country, in the United States and elsewhere uh, with Attar David. Uh, Attar David is an agricultural and environmental historian at the University of Texas where he is getting his uh, PhD as we speak. Uh, as we speak, he's working on his PhD. His uh, project examines the trans-regional history of agricultural practices commodity exchanges and knowledge production between the Middle East and the American Southwest at the turn of the 19th century. So really the connections between agriculture in the American Southwest and the Middle East, a fascinating topic. And uh, it it connects actually to what we're talking about today because Atar is deeply interested in the connections between um, the region of the world that we're talking about today and the wider world around it, and the ways in which uh, the region of the world he studies is is structured and how people live there, uh, we're very fortunate to have Atar with us. He's also uh, a citizen of of Israel and uh, someone who's deeply concerned about the events uh, in his country right now. So, Atar, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Before we turn to our discussion with Atar, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem? Passover 2023. Oh, we just had Passover.
2: or We're still in Passover. Hog yeah. Samea, by the way, Zachary. Thank you.
0: <laughs> we still have matzah in the house, don't we? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. It's still being consumed. It's still being consumed.
2: Yes. All right. Well, go ahead. Let's hear your poem. Far from the prying eyes of generations left unwound and unspooled, I wander the streets fighting back the naysaying wounds of a Texas rainstorm. In books I have seen us run the length of Polish mountain roads in snow with no shoes, or find some unquiet death in a mud puddle mound which the birds only remember was once flesh, whose. Do not worry, I have never seen such things myself. I have only talked through them over and over again, been freed a thousand times from Egypt, only to find that half of them are gone. In this sense, it is a miracle that the star is on those flags of ours. They wave in the center of the city street before our own stalled cars, the freeway sea, as if from death can sometimes bring democracy. But if The crashing waves of dark seas have any meaning. It is that it is always a fragile peace. And the difference between living and drowning is only a sliver of reef.
0: The precarity of it all, right, Zachary? Yeah. The precariousness of it all, I guess, is a better way to say that. Uh, what What is your poem about, and how does it connect to our topic this week?
2: Well, my poem, uh, on the one hand, is trying to uh, understand and capture the ways in which the Holocaust and the long, long history uh, of of trauma uh, and 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 violence uh, among the Jewish people and against the Jewish people, how that uh, has affected israeli society and israeli democracy Uh, but more than that it's it's about trying to uh capture a point that i think often gets lost in these discussions uh which is that the difference between uh the oppressor and the oppressed is sometimes a thin line the difference between being saved and being drowned if we take the biblical metaphor and that it's very important even as a people still trying to recover from the greatest crime in human history at least as i would see it um, I think uh, there's still a space for us to be critical of our of ourselves and our failings to create a just democracy and to promote the values that protect us, but also protect everyone around the world. So So you're saying that those who have been the
0: victims of oppression can be the perpetrators of it as well. Exactly. And that it's fair to criticize the victims of oppression when they act as oppressors themselves. Yes. Yeah, uh, Atara, that that seems to be a good spot to turn to uh, our discussion today. What are the efforts? What 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 role has the Israeli judiciary played uh, around these exact issues around protecting democracy and protecting different groups in Israel uh, during during the recent decades of Israeli history?
1: Yeah. So, <clears throat> first of all, Zachary, thank you so much for that poem. I, I really liked it, and I think you're. Point about oppressors and oppressed is spot on, and we don't only have the um, the right to criticize whoever is imposing, um, you know, unjust rules, but we have the duty to do so. Um, And I think it really resonates both in your poem and in some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today. So, Jeremy, as to your question, generally speaking, the the judicial branch, and, and here we talk mainly about the Israeli Supreme Court upholds uh, both the democratic standards and um, human rights in Israel. And it does so because it has two major responsibilities. One, obviously, it serves as the highest judicial instant in the country. But second, and perhaps more important for our discussion, is that it serves as something that we call the High Court for Justice, or Bagat in Hebrew which means that the court examines the legality of government decisions and the constitutionality of laws passed by the parliament. But it's worth noting that the court operates in an environment of constitutional ambiguity. And to understand why the ambiguity occurred and why an independent Supreme Court is such such a fundamental institution for Israeli democracy, um, I think we should acknowledge and, and talk for a second about Israel's unique constitutional history. Yes, please. And, and and the most important thing to know is that Israel has no constitution. So for um, several political reasons that I, I won't get into now, the founders of Israel, Israel was founded in 1948, and uh, the founders decided that rather than writing one coherent document Israeli parliaments would build its constitution incrementally by legislating special um, constitutional-like laws that we call basic laws. So up until the 1990s, these um, basic laws, these fundamental laws, focused mainly on organizing the juvenile um, Israeli political system, right? So they defined the role of the parliament, the role of the executive branch, that of the judicial branch, the army, and so forth. And then in 1992 and 1994, the Israeli parliament passed two highly important basic laws. The first one was the basic law concerning human dignity and liberty. And then the second one was the basic law concerning freedom of occupation. And what these two laws cemented is human rights as constitutional rights, right? As as something that is inherent to the fact that you are a citizen of Israel. So the platform, the legal platform for um, a more activist and a more um, interventionist court was there, but there was something missing, and that's the will of the court to intervene or to oversight uh, the government's <coughs> decisions and, and, and orders. And that change came with um, uh, with a guy named Aaron Barak, who became chief justice in 1995, and um, he served, by the way, from 1995 to, to 2006, sorry. So wow. he had a long tenure Yeah, yes. as, as, as Chief Justice. So <clears throat> Barak is considered both a liberal, which means that he prioritizes human rights above all else, and an activist, which means that he believes that the court has the authority to overcome Parliament's decision whenever they are rendered unconstitutional, according to these basic laws, or unreasonable. Um, And then one other thing that we need to consider is that the structure of Israeli political system is somewhat weird, right? It's not the same as the American one. Um, Israel is not a two party system. It has a multi-party system. And the way to form a government is to create a coalition of several parties. And these same parties that form the coalition of the government um, also form the parliamentary majority. And so, the executive and the legal branches are tightly bounded, and they're basically the same. And so the Supreme Court is the only real independent branch that is meant to balance the other two branches. And so the the Israeli Supreme Court operates in an environment of, of yet uncompleted constitution, um, and yet it sees itself as holding the authority to um, regulate and overrule Constitutional, unconstitutional, sorry, or, or unreasonable laws,
2: right? And and what are the the changes exactly? Uh, the changes to this uh, judiciary system uh, that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies in the Knesset uh, advocate, and and why has that, do you think, been met with with such a uh, fervent response from the public?
1: That's a great question. Um, let's let's um, talk about the first part of of your question, Zachary. and and again, it's important to remember that the the core of the current crisis in Israel is the question of the Supreme Court's authority, right? Um, so there are two camps in Israel these days, two groups that think differently about that question. On the one hand, we have the liberal groups that are made of liberal politicians, NGOs. Um, some members of the Supreme Court and, as of this moment, the huge protest movement that's on the street. And what they're saying is true, there might be a need for reforming the the, high, the Supreme Court, but the court has the right and, to some extent, the duty to overrule laws whenever they are, again, un- unconstitutional or unreasonable. On the other hand, we have the, the conservative groups that are made of conservative politicians, the current government, and and some fractions of of the public and and the current Supreme Court. And what they argue is that the parliament, as the people's representative, has the higher authority, right? It It has, as the representative of the people, the Supreme Court cannot overrule laws that are being legislated by the parliament. And that such overruling is, in fact, undemocratic. So that's the the first part. That's that's the core of the core of the argument. Um, as to the actual policies, when when the current Israeli Prime Minister, um, Minister of Justice Shaviv Levine, uh, presented his plans for reform in January, what uh, it looked like as though the government's goal was not really to uh, define more clearly the the balance between the three branches, but rather to completely deny the Supreme Court of any real power to supervise the government and the parliament. Um, so let's examine just two suggestions from Levine's original reform and explain why they're problematic. Um, the first piece of legislation that they that they suggested is that the Supreme Court won't be able to overrule these basic laws, right? These um, introduction to constitution, if, if you will, um, these special laws that someday will become the Israeli Constitution, but since there is no written procedure on how to legislate these basic laws, and and there is no an agreed upon process of how to how to do that, what this clause means is that the Parliament can uh, plea every law as basic law, and so the Supreme Court will be left basically powerless. So that was one example. So, so uh,
0: Attar, just a question on that: Does that mean that under this proposal? the Knesset, the coalition government that Netanyahu currently is the prime minister for, does that mean that they could actually pass laws that they would call basic laws that would deny basic democratic rights like free speech?
1: Um, theoretically speaking, yeah. They can do that and then the court will have no or, or very minimal way of of regulating and, and overruling them. Wow.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. Um, what they're saying, by the way, wh- when they were confronted with these allegations of the government and, and right-wing politicians, they said, "Well, don't worry, we're not going to do it. So we have the option. We're just not going to do it. Not going to do it." So, that's, not, yeah.
0: that's not very. That's not very comforting. There was a second yeah. area you, that I, I, I cut you off before you got to. I apologize. Yeah. So
1: uh, I just wanted to give one more example of, of uh, this sort of problematic um, suggestion that they have. So they they proposed um, changing the structure of the Judicial Appointment Committee, which is a a committee that works in the parliament, so that the coalition um, will have an inherent majority in the process of of appointing judges, right? So remember, the coalition in the parliament and the government are basically the same people. It's basically the same basis of power, right? What that uh, proposal means is that the parliament and the government, as a result, controls the judicial branch completely, and that judges have, in a way, interest to, um, you know, to come forward uh, and help uh, uh, parliament members and, and, and ministers and not to, not to hold them accountable to anything because their promotion depends on the same people.
0: Right, right. So they they would they would be professionally dependent upon the members of parliament. Different from the way we do judgeships in the United States, where it's a, a lifetime
1: appointment. That's right. That's right. I, I forgot to mention before um, the tenure of uh, of uh, to the Supreme um, Court in Israel is not for life. Um, judges have to retire at seventy. But still, um, if you're if you're dependent on on, on a group of people, you're not going to hold them accountable because your uh, personal uh, development, your personal career depends on them.
0: Right. It makes you more like a cabinet minister than a judge, correct?
1: That That's right. That's right.
0: Um, so... Just explain to us, before we move forward and talk about the opposition to this set of proposals, and I I sense you share many of the concerns of of some in the opposition, but before we move forward to that, just explain to us why you think for Israel it's so important to have an independent judiciary, which you've had, which is now threatened. Why is it so important to maintain this independent judiciary?
1: Again, I think it comes back to the question of balance of power, because the executive branch and the judicial branch share the same basis of power. It's the same personnel. They promote the same ideology. You can't, technically speaking, you can't hold onto a government without having a clear and sustainable majority in the parliament. These two branches are highly connected. And so the Supreme Court is uh, the only balance to um, an unlimited power by the executive branch and the parliament so
0: so it's a it's a protection as you see it against tyranny by the government that's in power exactly Um uh, so why um, is, it, is it? Is that the reason why there has been such widespread opposition? I have to say, as, a, as someone who just um, observes Israel from the outside and is not an expert, I have been astounded by the breadth and depth of the protests, uh, reservists in the military not showing up for duty out of a, a protest. Um, obviously, young people, many groups coming out uh, across Israel. Uh, what has what has sparked this resistance right now?
1: exactly that I think the people of Israel realize that the the reform that the government is trying to promote is not simply to rebalance um, the the power structure or the power relations or the 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 you know the the relationship between the three branches it's completely changing the very fabric of Israeli society um, so people realize that people are not not done, basically.
2: <laughs> and how common are protests such as these in Israeli society? These kind of mass uh, demonstrations of of discontent with a with a ruling coalition.
1: Um, not not so much. Um, I think the current protest protest that we see now um, is is so unique and so um, so so special in the history of Israel. Um, and I can talk some more about why I think it's so, Please. um, it's so widespread and, and successful so far or successful to some extent. Um, so I, I think what the, the true power of, of the current, um, um, protest movement mm-hmm. is its diversity and the fact that it operates in several dimensions, let's call it that way. And, and I think I can, I can divided, generally speaking, into four sections, four groups of demonstrators, right? So the first one is uh, the grassroots protest of, of masses of people, um, just to give you some numbers um, that I, that I um, found um, in, in preparing for, um, for this podcast. So um, the Ministry of Justice Levine announced his plan for um, judicial reform on January 4th, right? That was Wednesday. By the following Saturday, January 7th, thousands of people demonstrated in various locations, um, but mainly in Tel Aviv. The week after, the following Saturday, January 14th, some 80,000 people demonstrated in Tel Aviv alone. And by January 21st, an estimated 150,000 people demonstrated all across Israel. Um, And these uh, protests are still on the go every Saturday. And I know a lot of Family members and, and friends that are protesting on a weekly basis and sometimes even on um, on a daily basis and and there are a lot of Israelis that by the way live outside of Israel that are holding weekly protests as well. Um, we here in Austin are demonstrating every Sunday at 4 p.m. next to the to the Capitol. Um, so that's the that's like the first group, the the grassroots protest. There was also, let's <clears> call it <throat> the institution, institutional, sorry, objection of, from various uh, current and and former public servants. So many current and former prime ministers, ministers, uh, chief of staff, Mossad and Shabak leaders, which are the equivalent to the American FBI and CIA, economists, um, academia members, doctors, and what not have publicly condemned the reform and argue that if the government passes the laws that he wanted to pass, Israel would cease to be a democracy. Sorry, Jeremy. This,
0: include, this includes the minister of defense, correct? Who resigned as well. Yes.
1: Yeah. It, well, it included him for a while. Um, oh, okay. But that later, <laughs> that was, that was an interesting twist of events. Um, the third fraction um, is the economic protest. So um, I guess a lot of you know that the tax sector makes about 16% of Israel's GDP. And right from the get-go, um, private investors announced that they feared the reform would crash Israel's economy and that they're responsible for their investors. Uh, they'll have to basically flowing money outside of the country. And that had some... Although not very profound economic impact, but a lot of people are anxious from an economic crash in the future. And then the fourth fraction, which you've mentioned briefly, uh, Jeremy, and I, which I think was the most impactful, is the uh, military protest or, or ex-military protest. So it's important to realize that military service is mandatory in Israel and once you're done with, when you're, once you're dismissed from active duty, you're stationed in reserves, which makes the majority of military personnel in Israel. Um, and, and that these people who are, who are in reserve are basically volunteering to serve, right? That it's legally or, or theoretically mandatory to serve, but no one can really force you to do that if you don't want to. Um, and as the government went on with uh, promoting the reforms, some people announced that if the laws pass and when Israel ceases to be a democracy, they would stop showing up. Now, these people, the leaders of the reserve protests are people that allow the very existence of Israel. They are pilots and, and special op people. Without them serving, honestly, my parents can start looking for real estate in Austin. Um <laughs> And that they know that they have leverage on the government, and they are using it. I think very wisely.
0: Is this the first time we have seen that group protest in this way?
1: In this way, yes. So there have been some um, protests of, of ex military personnel in, in Israel, but these and 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 reserve people in Israel, but these had to do mainly with um, issues that were related to the army and with, um, you know, some debates about Israeli, say, um, operations in Gaza or back in 82 about the, um, Sabra and Shatila, um, massacre and Israel's, um, alleged involvement in that. So that was a huge protest, but never, never before in, in the history of Israel, um, military Personal and 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 people with such a such leverage use that leverage to change um, decisions and 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 reforms that are not related directly to the military.
0: Um, Atar, is there a um, ethnic breakdown that we know of in in who's protesting and who isn't? Uh, obviously, a lot of attention has been given in recent years to the changing ethnic composition of Israel with so many Russian refugees coming to Israel and Israel becoming less of a um, East European uh, and German Jewish dominated society. and that's of course changed the politics considerably also adding in the settlers, of course, uh, do these ethnic cleavages, do they explain to some extent who's protesting and who's not?
1: Yeah, I think they explain more who is not protesting. Um, so, again, because because the suggested reforms um, are so fundamental, because they really, um, uh, you know, take the political system out of balance, there is, a, there is a, a, a very wide coalition of people who are protesting. But um, there are a lot of people who feel that they're not belong to the current protest. Um, I think the two major groups are A, the um, Orthodox Jews, who are traditionally more associated with supporting the um, right-wing um, um, fractions of Israeli politics. And so they are at least in theory, and by definition, supporting the current reforms. And then the other group are the Arab Israelis who are not taking, um, most of them are not taking active part in the current pro- the protests. Um, and I honestly, I think that's one of the biggest issues of, of the protests these days is that um, although it is, in, in my opinion, um, at least justifiable and right. It, it hasn't been able to be inclusive enough to people who are not traditionally taking a more active role in shaping Israeli society and politics. and
0: And you think that's why the Arab Israelis have been less
1: involved? Yes, I think they're traditionally speaking, they feel like um, they are underrepresented in the political system and so, whatever problem the judicial branch have or the parliament have, um, since they are not being, you know, a part of that game to begin with, they don't feel like they have money on the table, I guess. And, and, and I think they're wrong, by the way. I think they're the first one to be hurt and to suffer when these well, reforms would, would pass, if they'll pass.
2: Um what has been the government, the ruling coalition that proposed this legislation in the first place? What has been their reaction to these protests? Uh, we've seen, I think for the first time in a long time, uh Prime Minister Netanyahu being forced to to back down on an issue of this magnitude yes
1: Yeah, um I'm not sure that i that I agree that that the protest really push Netanyahu to the corner, and that that was the the leading cause for him stopping um, the process. Now, it's one narrative, and it and it's a um, you know it has it has some 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 good foundation. So, um, about three weeks weeks ago, um, Netanyahu fired the defense minister Yoav uh, Gallant after the later call to basically stop the process and negotiate with the opposition. Um, that was 8 p.m. Israel time, if I remember correctly. And almost immediately, people fled to the streets in hundreds of thousands and protested all night. Um, so that was some sort of organic and and very powerful reaction. But I think the more profound Effect of that move by Netanyahu was that the next day, Israel's largest labor union, which includes workers from both the private and the public sector, declared a general strike that shut down the entire economy for half a day. And so by the evening of that day, Netanyahu announced that he's willing to stop for a month and, and negotiate with the opposition and the protest movement. But um, coincidentally or not, you tell me, a few days later, the parliament went to recess um, because of Passover, Israeli Memorial Day, and Independence Day. So I think while Netanyahu can claim that he listened to the public and, and sort of took a step back there, um, technically speaking, it seems to me that the process would have stopped regardless.
0: And, and what do you expect from Netanyahu then going forward when, when the Knesset comes back from Passover?
1: All right. So... As, as we speak now, there is an ongoing negotiation between uh, the coalition and the opposition that is taking place um, courtesy of Israel's president, which is sort of a symbolic role that has no real authority, kind of like the British royalty, but without all the corgis. So <laughs> theoretically speaking, um, compromise is on the way in the following few weeks. But at the same time, it's worth remembering that the coalition made sure to prepare the ground to move forward with the reform. So they promoted several legislations. Um, they Their proposed reform for the judge um, appointment committee that I've mentioned before have passed the first round of votes and it can be completed in second and third round of votes, which is the process in Israel within 24 hours. So they can decide to, you know, Keep going with the reform today and be done with that one law tomorrow at the same time. Um, the same goes with the law that prevents uh, the Supreme Court from overruling executive appointment of ministers. And in the meanwhile, the coalition uh, have passed a law that determines that only the government, not the court, not the Israeli attorney general, can render the prime minister unfit for duty. So that basically means that Netanyahu himself is uh, pretty much immune to any judicial review from now on. So there's um, technically there's negotiation going on, and 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 there's venue for compromise. But I'm I would be I would I would closely monitor the situation, and I, and I will closely
0: situation. <laughs> well, and I hope all of our, <laughs> our listeners will too. What What do you yeah. foresee for the future of Israel in the next few months and years? Uh, there's no guarantee that Benjamin Netanyahu will remain uh, prime minister, right? He has a very narrow coalition. Uh, he does not have a lot of extra votes. Uh, and Israel has already gone through, I think, four elections, uh, Atar in the last few years. Five. Five elections. Yes. I've lost count. See? Um, no. So... So what what do you expect? What, what, what do you expect to see, not just around this issue, but for Israeli democracy? Will there be a renaissance of Israeli democracy because this has raised awareness for so many people, or is this uh, a moment of decline
1: for Israeli democracy? Yeah, so, I, you know, I, I have all the reasons to be pessimistic, right? Um, the current government has complete control over the parliament, and they can push forward the... Reform or overhaul whenever they want, um, and I think the their actions revealed that there are a lot of people in Israel that imagine the community that we call Israel in very different terms than I imagine it. Having said that, I am very optimistic. Once as a citizen of Israel, and and twice as and the second time as a historian. So, as a citizen. Um, you know, we started a conversation with uh, Israeli founders unwilling to decide on one constitution. And I think a lot of people in Israel realize that now is the time to stop being afraid and start facing the long-term fundamental tensions in our society. So that includes writing a constitution. That includes stating the tension between the um, core definition of Israel as both a Jewish and democratic state state sorry how do you balance that tension <clears throat> i think that includes creating a more just economy and and political system that allows representation but also encourages contribution and making fe- people feel that they are not left out and and finally maybe you know the biggest elephant in the room uh, people are now realizing that the israeli state must decide what we want to do with the Israeli occupation in the West Bank. We're in sort of a preliminary situation. We're we're not annexing the West Bank, but we're not granting Palestinian full independence. And I think people are grasping with the fact that we have to decide. So that's my optimism as a citizen, as a historian, um, and as someone who's following not only the Israeli media, but international cover. I can tell that people all around the world realize that we're in the midst of a critical juncture of democracy, and that Israel is not an isolated case, right? That democracies are being challenged globally, and that um, the more we fight for preserving democracy democracy locally, the better chances that we have saving democracy as an idea globally. globally. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic.
0: That's it's rare for me to hear such optimism from you, Atar. That's really yeah, actually quite yeah. compelling
1: to me. Well, um, you only know me as a TA, right? So, that was
0: <laughs> so. There's this other optimistic side of Atar that I haven't yeah. seen before, and this brings that out. Uh, and and it's your what you say is is compelling and, and actually quite quite logical. Um, w- we always like to close the podcast, as, as you know, by really trying to show how this history is useful and relevant, and you've already done that. Uh, but for many of our listeners who are not Israeli citizens or not necessarily invested uh, deeply in Israel personally, um, what do you want them to take away? What, what can our American and other listeners do to help democracy in Israel, clearly the United States can't solve this problem. We have plenty of our own problems at home, but but what what should we be doing?
1: Um, I think that that knowing and and engaging with the situation in other places in in the U.S. as well, obviously, but with global trends and global changes is an inherent. And and critical skill for modern citizens, Um, and that you cannot expect to have all the answers to yourself. You cannot expect to know what's the right thing to do, and that you know you can um, use the 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 challenges and and the strategies of, of other places to try and improve. Not only the state of democracy and, and the state of society here in the U.S., but um, uh, also in other places. I'm not sure that you know um, talking to your representative and and asking them to um, support Israeli democracy uh, would be would have any influence on the Israeli government. But it's worth trying. Well,
0: ostensibly, Attar, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, my sense is that many Israeli citizens care deeply about what Jews and non-Jews in other parts of the world think of Israel, yes?
1: Um, yeah, for the most part, unless they're criticizing them. And then <laughs> they, you know, they render them as, as just, you know, being provocative. And they,
0: right. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Zachary, as, as someone who, who has been watching this and as someone who cares deeply about democracy and someone who is often in conversations with other young Jewish uh, citizens in the United States and non-Jews about these issues, um, how does this discussion help you to think about democracy and what you and your generation of Jews and non-Jews can do in this situation?
2: Well, I think it's a reminder why American Jews should care what happens in Israel. I think it's a reminder of some of the amazing democratic institutions and civil society organizations that Israel has created in the past decades, Um, but also a reminder of how fragile those are and how important it is that we as American Jews uh, speak up and and speak out uh, for democracy and justice in Israel. And in that sense, I think it should be a call to action, not just for American Jews, but for all young Americans. um, Because I think that our country and Israel are very closely tied together and a threat to democracy in our country, just as it's a threat to democracy in Israel, also a threat to democracy in Israel is a threat to democracy in our country and some of the same people are involved in both efforts. Right.
0: I think there, there's there's a lot to that. Um, and I think uh, some of the allies, we haven't talked about this, and Atar and was careful to stick to uh, Israeli politics, but one could certainly argue that many of the allies of those pushing for this um, remaking of the Israeli judiciary, many of their allies in the United States are also people who want to uh, undermine certain institutions of democracy in the United States as well. Um, And and I think recent weeks and days have reminded us how important the rule of law is to democracy. And the rule of law is not about uh, using the police to imprison a lot of people. The rule of law is about a body of knowledge, a constitutional and legal body of knowledge, whether you have a constitution or not, that provides uh, a set of backstops and protections for the rights of citizens that evolve over time so that a powerful group cannot tyrannize a smaller and vulnerable group. And that's the role of a Bill of Rights and a Constitution in the United States and a court designed to protect those. And it's the role in in other common law traditions uh, of institutions uh, like the Israeli Supreme Court. And uh, if you believe in democracy, you have to believe in the rule of law, and therefore you have to believe in an independent judiciary that's not just another arm of politics. And, And I think both in the United States and in Israel and in many other societies, um, we need to understand the importance of the rule of law, what the rule of law means, and what the role of courts, uh, independent courts, really is. And uh, perhaps we've forgotten out of our complacency in recent years. And perhaps Atar and others in Israel and in the United States are reminding us. Um, I share your optimism, Atar. I do think there's been an unmasking of long developing trends. And the historian in me says that. Um, the raising of consciousness is actually the start of change, uh, and I think that's what you were arguing as as well. Thank you, Atar, for joining us and for uh, raising our consciousness and educating us in a fact based and I think thoughtful and uh, clear way about w- what's happening uh, in Israel and what that means for democracy. Uh, our topic, of course, uh, broadly defined. Thank thank you so much, Atar David.
1: Thank you guys so much for the opportunity.
0: Zachary, thank you for your poem on Passover 2023. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy.
2: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can
1: find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.